Now, before I get too detailed into Judges chapter 10, I did want to wrap up just a couple of things from Judges chapter 9. So if, if you had your hand out, then that's fine. If not, don't worry about it. But one of the things that you may have noticed from the handout last time is I had Abimelech spelled a couple of different ways. <clears throat> the way that it's on the title of that handout is the way that it is in every translation that I could find. So that was the correct way. So then I went to look and say, where, where did I come up with just Abimelech with L-E-K at the end? Maybe I invented it myself. I don't know. But it turns out I didn't. I could have, but I didn't. One of the tr- one of the uh, commentaries that I use had it spelled that way. I go, okay, I don't feel so bad now. I copied it from somebody else. Um, the only translation that I found that did not have a Bimelech with an E-C-H at the end was a complete Jewish Bible, which, ha- which has it spelled A-V as in Victor, I-M-E-L-E-K-H. So, I didn't quite go that far, but needless to say, it's different. So, if you want to correct that on your handout, you can, or you can just leave it with a K, and know that that was part of my rush last week to get things done. We ended up, or, or stopped last week, talking about uh, Gael and his family being pushed out of Shechem. And then Abimelech then wants to wreak out some retribution against Abimelech because, or I mean against Shechem, because Shechem was the largest city. It was the city that had put him into power. It was also the source of most of his revenue because it was a, it was on the trade route. So folks that were transiting in and out. They would come through there. He would collect taxes. And I'm sure he taxed anything that was, any commerce that was taking place in that town. But when God put that animosity between Abimelech and the folks of Shechem, you remember the folks of Shechem were going out and raiding some of these uh, caravans that were coming through. So they challenged his power to be in control. They also ruined his ability to collect taxes from this, and people were starting to take routes a different way. So Abimelech decides, I'm going to take it out on Shechem, not thinking that this is one of those cases where you cut off your nose and spite your face. So he put together uh, some raiding parties. In the morning when the folks from Shechem went out, he put his first raiding party right in front of the gate so they couldn't get back in. And then they attacked these folks that are out in the fields, either tending the vines or tending the trees or tending other crops. They can't get back in the city. Then he turns and goes into the town and starts killing people there, uh, the most of which decide that they will will run into the temple, uh, which is, is referred to as a tower, so this temple to Baal, and he sets fire to it. He sets fire to it and and burns up the people that are inside. It says at least a thousand men and women that died because of this this fit that he's having. He's not quite done there. He then turns against Thebes, 
Um, that is a town that's about 10 miles away. Apparently, it was involved in uh, rebellion against Abimelech as well. So he starts the same kind of thing. He attacks, he kills, and they do the same thing. They run into the tower, uh, the, the tower that is part of uh, this temple to Baal. So he decides that he will do the same thing here. He'll just burn it down. So he and his men start piling things up. And as the scriptures says, he got just a little bit too close to the tower. And a woman drops a millstone. And I'm told that stone is about 10 inches. You know, so something about like that. It, it was made to roll on the, on the larger, lower millstone to grind wheat. So this would have been fairly easy to carry, but heavy enough it could be used as a weapon, which is probably what she had it for. I don't think she took aim necessarily, but she dropped it. I think God took care of the aim part, struck him in the head, and he knew it was a fatal blow. And Abimelech says what? He calls his his armor bearer and he says, run me through. I can't have it said that a woman killed me. You know, people get people get weird, you know. If you're going to die, you're going to die, right? But there's this honor kind of thing, and he was striking out all the way around. He wasn't in battle. He wasn't killed in battle. He was killed by a woman, even though his armor bearer is the one that straight, strikes the fatal blow to prevent him from dying from his head being smashed. That way, nobody would accuse him of being killed by a woman. However, in 2 Samuel, chapter, well, it's, it's mentioned right here in, in Judges. He was killed by a woman, but uh, if that's not good enough, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 21, when Joab is explaining to the messenger that is going back to David to talk about Uriah being killed, He's giving him some of the logic that went on, even though this is more for the benefit of men than it is for David, because David had arranged this thing for Uriah to get killed. He had told Joab, push further than you should, and then pull back, leaving Uriah out there to get killed. And so Joab's explaining to the messenger to take back to David. The king may say, why did you go so close to the wall? Because you remember how Abimelech got too close and a woman killed him (laughs) with a millstone. So not only does Abimelech get known for being killed by a woman, but it's written at least twice in Scripture. Once when it happens back here in Judges, and also it was remembered. And it's talked about again in Samuel. So... The writer concludes that God thus repaid the wickedness of Abimelech for the evil that he had done to his father by killing his brothers. And he also had repaid the men of Shechem for all of their wickedness, and thus the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubael, that is Gideon, had come upon them. So um, Psalms 34, 21 says, The evil will slay wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. And Proverbs 21.12, the righteous one takes note of the house of the wicked and brings wicked to ruin. So we're going to leave Abimelech and we're going to go into chapter 10. 
and talk about Tola and Jair, or Jair, and kind of warm up for Jephthah. The next two chapters are going to be about Jephthah, but what happens ahead of time before Jephthah is on the scene is covered here in chapter 10. So the first two verses, after the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shimmer or Shamer in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel for 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. So this man is actually from the tribe of Issachar. But he was installed, I guess, in his, uh, his role as a judge in this city of Shamir, which is in the territory of Ephraim. So Ephraim is on the west side of the Jordan River along with Judah and Simeon and Benjamin. So he's over that way. 23 years. It's interesting here. It says that he saved Israel. But you know, most of the time when when a judge is put in place, there's some adversary that is out there, and and you hear about the judge leading a, a party to conquer that adversary. In this particular case, there is no adversary. So most people tend to think that he was saving Israel from Abimelech. Even though he did not kill Abimelech, we know a woman did that. But he, you know, Israel was kind of in disarray. Because you've got somebody that has come in and asserted himself to be king when God didn't say he wanted a king. So God gives them Tola then as a judge. He rules for 23 years. After he is on the scene, oh, and um, he's the sixth judge out of all the ones that we've listed so far. He's number six, but he's also the second minor judge, with Shamgar being the first. And the only difference between a minor judge and a major judge is the same difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets. And what is that? Difference between major and minor. Minor, there's not much said about you. A minor prophet, very, very small book. Major prophet, a lot is said about you. Major prophets, they wrote a lot. So when you get back into the Old Testament, you got five major prophets, right? Five major prophets, and then you got 12 that are referred to as minor prophets because they did not write very much. In some cases, only one chapter. Anyway... He is the second minor prophet. But he is then followed by Tola. He was followed by, he, he followed by, uh, Jair of Gilead, who led Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, to which this day are called Heveth Jair, which means settlements of Jair or cities or towns of Jair. When he died, he was buried at Cayman. So, J.R., another minor prophet, so he would be number seven and number three, if you're going seven overall, three minor. He judged Israel for 22 years. So you've got 22 years followed by, or 23 years followed by 22 years. God is giving them 45 years 
of leadership after Abimelech has come in here for three years. Abimelech was only on the scene for about three years as a force anyway. This guy, you don't really know that much about Tola, but J.R., he has 30 sons, probably had multiple wives, you would hope anyway. Uh, 30 sons that rode on their own donkey, which would imply there was wealth involved there because not many people had a donkey per kid. And each of these had their own private donkey. Not only that, they each controlled a town in Gilead. Now, Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan. It's east of the Jordan. Gilead is composed of territory. It's a mountainous territory that starts down in Reuben, through Gad, and through the southern part of a half-tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh is one that split. It's got half on one side of the Jordan, half on the other side of the Jordan. But when you talk about Gilead, it actually means hill of testimony, but it is a mountainous region that goes through about three different tribes. So, 45 years of peace. You would think, wouldn't you? You would think that people would then be willing to continue to follow God. But that's not what happens. After J.R. dies, verse 6 says what? Again, (laughs) Israel did evil in the sight of God. The people of Israel did not take advantage of the years that they had in peace to grow a relationship with God. It's almost like they were on cruise control. You know, sometimes we get that way too. You know, things are going good and we don't really worry about um, turning to God a lot. We don't really worry about doing what we ought to be doing. We're just kind of on cruise control. And then something happens and then it's time to turn to God. The devil intervenes with them because once the judge is gone, they turn their eyes away from the Lord and they start worshiping the foreign gods. You would think, just looking back over their history, they could say, you know, when we're obedient, things go well. When we're disobedient, things go poorly. God chastises us when we do wrong. God rewards us when we do well. And that really goes all the way back to what they were told before they ever came into the land to begin with. Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, talks about getting on Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and the blessings and the curses that are shouted back and forth. If we obey, we have these blessings. If we disobey, we have these curses. It's also recorded back in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and chapter 28. What was the evil? Well, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the gods of Amram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Philistines. Now, if you count those up real quick, that's seven. I don't know if that's just because it's a complete number or if that just happens to be the way it worked out. Seven groups of gods, because each of these is not, is not a single Baal. There are multiple Baals. Not a single Asherah. There are multiple Asherahs. Not a single uh, god for any of these groups. They all have multiple gods. So now 
Israel is worshiping a multiplicity of gods. And they might be worshiping the Lord God, too. But you know, like I know, God does not deal that way. He will not be part of a group of gods. He will not be anything but the God. You worship him and you worship him alone. Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24, uh, Moses says to the people before entering the land, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything that your Lord God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And yet back in chapter 2, verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt and followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. In Judges chapter 3, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. In chapter 8, no sooner than Gideon had died, Israel again prostituted themselves with the Baals. They even set up Baal Bareth, which means, as we pointed out before, Baal of the covenant. Now that's ridiculous. Baal can't talk. How did he make a covenant with them? The only one that made a covenant with them was the Lord God Almighty, who can talk. Who, who can actually make a covenant and can enforce a covenant. Downright comical. How did the Lord respond to the evil? Well, he was angry. And when he got angry, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, just as he had sworn that he would do to them. This sold, sold them is a forcible expression that implies the handing over of people into the hands of the enemy as if God says, I don't have any property claim on them anymore. I'm not concerned about them. You can do what you want to them because I am not their God and they are not my people. Well, that's kind of scary, isn't it? It should be. It really should be. Back in Leviticus chapter 26... Uh, verse 14 through 17. If you will not listen to me and carry out these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to f- carry out all the commands and so violate my covenant, then this I will do to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because the enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you and you will be defeated by your enemies. Those you hate will rule over you. You will even flee when no one is pursuing you. It is scary. It is scary. So much so that they were jumpy and they were jittery because they didn't even know where the danger was coming from. It was coming from all sides. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your fathers, but these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me, break my covenant that I made with them. On that day I will be angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them in that day. And they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because the Lord is not with us. Hmm. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what's supposed to happen. It should dawn on them. So God hands them over the Philistines and the Ammonites. The Philistines would be on the Mediterranean coast side, pressing in from that side. The Ammonites on the other side, uh, uh, the far eastern side, 
pressing back on that in that direction. It says that year they shattered and crushed them. Uh, some commentators seem to think that maybe that was the year that they turned. The year that they turned, which would be the year that the judge died. Maybe immediately, I don't know. But for 18 years they oppressed the Israelites from the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. 18 years. They had 45 years of peace, probably one generation that had peace under those judges. And now they've got 18 years under this oppression of the Ammonites and the Philistines. That's the same length of time, this 18 years, same length of time that Moab had ruled over them back in Judges chapter 3. So history repeating itself again. Then verse 9 says, The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to attack against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim, which I said was on the uh, western side of that. And then it says, Israel was in great distress. For 18 years, they were oppressed. For 18 years, they were putting up with this. But it doesn't say they were in great distress that whole time. But now it says they were in great distress. Verse 10, then, <laughs> I like that one. Then the Israelites turned to God. 18 years, they've been trying it their own way. 18 years, they've been doing it their own way. 18 years, they've been pleading and praying to a multiplicity of gods. Perhaps God included, I don't know. But now they've decided it's time to turn to God. We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. This is the first time in the book of Judges that a confession has been recorded. Yeah, interesting. We're about halfway through the book. First time that a confession has been recorded. But God doesn't buy it. I know that because of the speech that he gives them right after this. The Lord's response suggested that they cried out to him only because it was a last resort. But they may have been crawling out to, calling out to their false gods at the same time. God doesn't want to be the last, and he doesn't want to be the temporary. He doesn't want to be any kind of resort for the fickle. He would know if their hearts were turning or had turned, and they hadn't. I know that because the Lord replies in verse 11 that when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out for me to help, did I not save you from their hands? I don't know if you counted that up or not, but guess what? That's seven. Seven groups of gods that they're falling down before and seven groups of people that God has already defended them from. What utter foolishness. Those seven groups of people worshiped gods that the Lord God had defeated. Why would you worship gods that stood no chance against your God? 
Your God has wiped them out in front of you. Your God has rescued you from them. Why would you bow down to those gods? They were impotent next to the Lord God of heaven. They had no power next to him. Why would you turn to them? And that's God's point. Are you stupid? You're bowing down in front of something that has no power? (laughs) We've already defeated them. Why are you worshiping their gods? Doesn't make sense. He reminds them of his faithfulness. He reminds them of their unfaithfulness. Then the Lord accuses them. And he makes a declaration, and then he issues a challenge. First off, he says, you have forsaken me. Israel is now in danger of being permanently forsaken by God. Israel needs to wake up, and they need to see the danger that they're in right now. They're so accustomed to having the mercy of God that they despise it, even when they're seeking it. But then he makes a declaration. God then announces that he will no longer help them. Now, if they hadn't been scared before, they really should be scared now. God says, not going to help you anymore. You're on your own. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be the scariest thing that I can imagine. If God said, David, you're on your own. Go for it. I've had enough of you. One too many times, I'm done. That would be scary. And then he issues a challenge <laughs> Go to your gods, <laughs> plead with them, let them save you. Go ahead, go right ahead, because I'm done with you. You know, some of the scariest verses in the Bible are in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where he says that people have have observed all of this creation and still deny that God is there. People have created idols and worshipped the creation as opposed to the creator. People have gone uh, in sexual desire, man after man, woman after woman, in opposition to the way God has created it. And and the the verses that pop up is God gave them over. God gave them up. It's exactly the same thing. You see, God God will forgive us or forget us too. Matter of fact, if you read through there in Romans chapter 1, you almost get the impression that God will help you believe a lie if you want to believe a lie. Really scary stuff. In Romans chapter 2 says, don't be throwing stones either because some of you were that way too before you woke up. The Israelites then say to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods, 
and they worship the Lord. So now you have, at least I think in my mind, some true repentance. They confess, and this time I think they mean it. They also are calling on the mercy of God. This, this statement here, but um, do whatever that you think is best. They are falling on God's mercy. Do to us whatever you're going to do to us, but do it now. Kill us, save us, we don't care, just come on and do it. We trust you. That's pretty brave too, isn't it? Whatever you're going to do to me, Lord, for the sin that I have sinned, please do it now. I don't care if you save me or kill me. Just do it now. They plead for his mercy. But there is repentance, I think, because they start getting rid of these other gods. They get those out of the way, and they turn to the Lord. Then the writer would say that he could bear God, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. You see, God is actually affected by the grief and the torment that his people go through. We don't think about that. You know, we talk about Jesus, as we did this morning. He was here and he was human. And he has gone through everything that we go through. But the writer here says God is affected when his children are in pain or when they're in misery or when they're being mistreated. It affects God. It affected him. And he relents. He could bear their misery no more. The last two verses introduce what is going to be Jephthah's battle. The people gather uh, against the Ammonites. The Ammonites have camped in Gilead, so this is that territory, the mountainous territory there, uh, with uh, Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh. The Israelites are camped nearby in Mizpah. It looks like they're ready for action, but there's a little bit of a problem. Who's going to lead us? Verse 18 says, The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch or whoever will begin the attack against the Ammonites will be head of all things living in Gilead. So, they want a leader. They're willing to make that leader their king, basically, or the next judge. But you know what's missing here? God's the one that's been appointing judges, and there's no mention of God. However... The one thing that it says here that kind of kind of dings in your brain, who will begin the attack? And if you remember back in um, Judges chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be first, or who will begin, or who will launch the fight against the Canaanites? Maybe, I don't know, but maybe... This is a request of God. Who will go first? Who will begin the attack? Who will launch the attack? Who will be our leader? Hopefully that's the way it is. We'll know next week, or we'll find out next week, that Jephthah is the one, because we're actually going to do a little backtracking in the first part of this next chapter to set up Jephthah, and then their eventual coming to him and requesting that he lead them. 
Anyway, thank you very much for your attention this morning, and we'll pick up chapter 11 next week.